The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Are you ready for the next level of leadership? It's going to be here before you know it. Today's leaders need the skills, connections, and savvy to become top professionals in their fields. Welcome to Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations with Maureen Metcalf. In the next hour, you'll meet people who have become successful at the helm of some of the most respected organizations in the world, and you can become the next big success story. Now, here's your host, Maureen Metcalf. Hi, welcome to Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf, and I'm delighted to be recording live from the International Leadership Association Conference in Atlanta. I am the founder and CEO of Metcalf & Associates. I work with leaders and their organizations, identifying the trends that will most likely disrupt their businesses and work with them to develop strategies and business and leadership practices that leverage those trends and create strategic advantage. I'm a regular contributor to Forbes and the lead author of an award-winning book series focusing on innovating how you lead and transforming your organizations. I'm also an adjunct faculty member with universities in the U.S. and Germany. We talk about the rate of change in our current world, and according to Ray Kurzweil, we anticipate that technology change in this century will be 20,000 times the rate of the last century. And what that really means for leaders is that we will have to metabolize these changes, identify which ones impact our industries, and create solutions that enable our businesses to to continue to thrive without being derailed. It also means that the complexity of these changes is continuing to increase. So our complexity as leaders needs to correspondingly increase. And that's really a lot of the impetus behind this work is helping leaders innovate how they lead or specifically change their business practices, their leadership practices, their leadership behaviors in a way that corresponds with the the environmental changes that we're all facing such that their organizations will be better off with these changes rather than getting derailed. In addition to sharing models and our experiences, I invite you to listen for something from each of the presenters that you might want to implement in your own lives. I talk about leaders moving from command and control, but toward what? It's the mind of the scientist. As I am faced with these changes, how do I know what to do, how to do it, when to do it? And for most of us, we are creating the leading practices. We no longer have books to go to that define what is best. That's in our court. So how as a leader do I go from being a great student of the masters to becoming one of the masters? And I will be sharing information from some of those masters for you to leverage such that you become one of the masters. So I invite you to listen each week for something that you can implement in your own leadership and test it out. And I would love to hear back from you if you find something that was particularly useful. 
Either email me at info at metcalf-associates.com or visit our Facebook page, Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. I would love to share your successes and lessons learned with our listeners. Today we're joined by Ron Heifetz. So Ron, would you introduce yourself and then we'll jump into some thoughts about what, what's most interesting to you right now. My name is uh, Ron Heifetz. I've been teaching at the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard for about 34 years. I started my career in medicine, training and surgery. And after my first year of training, I took a year off in between my general surgical internship and what I had thought was going to be a neurosurgical residency. I was preparing to be a brain surgeon like my father was. Mm -hmm. And uh, during that year off, I did two things. First of all, I went back to study some music because I grew up playing music, playing the cello, and I was enjoying sort of having a year to do that. And then while to support my music habit, I had to make a living. And I was already licensed to practice medicine as a general practitioner. And to get part-time jobs, we call them moonlighting Mm -hmm. jobs. And the first moonlighting job I was able to get was at Rikers Island Prison in New York City. So once a week, from 4 in the afternoon until 8 in the morning, I was the doctor for the prison. And part of my job was to take care of medical emergencies, but those were rare because most people coming into prison from the local jails were healthy, they were young. But what kept me up all night long was uh, doing routine physical examinations of all of the uh, inmates as they would be, uh, as they would come into the prison Mm -hmm. uh, from the local jails. They frequently come in during the night by buses and they were entitled to a medical exam. So it was just part of their entry into the prison. Immediately, anybody could see that nearly everybody coming into the prison was poor, and nearly everybody had experienced a lot of injustice in their life. Most of the people were uh, minorities and had experienced a lot of bad things, and in their own perverse way, were kind of hitting back or doing justice in a system where they thought there wasn't any justice. And uh, that got me really interested in social problems and social illness and public policy and social policy. Because in medicine, you know, you work training, you train and you work hard to help individual people get better in, in, in their individual health. But it was clear from that prison experience that individual people are part of large sociological patterns, economic patterns, patterns of racial prejudice, patterns of family dysfunction sometimes uh, that are a product of the poverty and a product of the prejudice. And so I began to, to shift my career from being a doctor at the individual level to working at the systemic level. But for me, problems, a problem-centered approach was part of my training because in medicine, you always begin with the question, what's the problem? And uh, you assume that if the person were healthy, they're not coming to see you, but there's a problem. And Uh there's a presenting problem, which is usually a symptom. And then you have to do sometimes a lot of hard thinking and a lot of hard investigating to Uh figure out what's the underlying problem, which we then call a diagnosis. When I finished the prison job, I then had a job, another moonlighting job, examining CEOs and senior vice presidents of big New York companies. Still in the medical space, not in the leadership space. Right. This was all part of my transition. And uh, the job in this executive health clinic that gave these people were entitled to a medical exam. Not Not unlike the prisoners. Because of their fringe medical value. And so, uh, so I'd spend sometimes an hour, hour and a half talking with each one of these people, mainly guys back then. It was 1978, 1980 for those years. And I really learned a lot from talking with them about how more than half of them were stressed out 
mm-hmm. and not managing the stresses of their jobs very, very well. The stresses came out in all sorts of ways, you know, smoking, eating poorly, drinking mm-hmm. too much. Sometimes they came out in really subtle kinds of ways. Like I remember one guy came in and he had this 100-point checklist and he checked off on his checklist that he was having difficulty hearing. Okay. Which is unusual for a 50-year-old man. And I asked him, okay, well, how do you know that you're having a trouble hearing? Are you having trouble hearing in meetings? Are you having trouble hearing in the movie theater? Where are you having trouble hearing? He said, no, work is fine, you know, and movies are fine, but when I go home, my wife is telling me I'm having trouble hearing. (laughs) (laughs) So I said, okay, well, what's going on? So he said, well, you know, I get up at 6, you know, I leave the house at 6 in the morning. I get home after 8 o'clock at night. I commute in and out of New York City. And my wife's got all these things she wants to talk about, and I just don't have anything left. So this is not really an audible problem. Right, exactly. And so after about a year of, of spending time with these executives, I began to think about the challenges of leadership from people in high positions of authority. And what is it about being placed in a high position of authority mm-hmm. can be challenging and difficult, isolating, and lead to uh, behaviors that are not healthy. And, and putting those two together, the interest in leadership and the interest in public policy led me to design for myself a training program in leadership. At the time, 1978, 1980, there were no such places to get an education in thinking about the practice of leadership. So I, I had to design my own, and uh, the first step in that was to finish my medical training in psychiatry. I thought that would give me tools. So at that point, then, you have the balance between understanding the neurobiology and the psychology. Yes. Which is a powerful combination. It is, but not quite as applicable as people would like to believe these days. I don't think the neurosciences have that much yet to give us. They may in the future, but I think people are very, very excited when they find a neuroscientific explanation for the behaviors that we already see and know quite a lot about Mm -hmm. just from observation. But the psychiatry did help me in in thinking about the dilemmas of of leadership, particularly thinking about family systems and group systems. I then did a degree at the Kennedy School and then joined the faculty 34 years ago to experiment with developing a curriculum in leadership. At the time, there weren't any other places in the country teaching leadership except the Military Academy at West Point. Mm, This was 1983. Business schools didn't begin to think about leadership until the 1990s. So for a very long time, I felt uh, in a very open terrain getting to create. Mm. Um, Most of my students who come through the Kennedy School are in our mid-career and executive programs. Okay. They come from 97 different countries on any given year. I think it was 97 countries last year. So I'll have a class of people from 40 different countries on average. How big is a class for you? 112 people. Okay. And they're mainly at mid-career. Mm-hmm. So they have a lot of experience. They have a lot of success stories and they have a lot of failures. And I've organized my teaching around their own cases. Okay. I find it's a lot more powerful to teach people in a way that will be of sustaining value to them mm-hmm. if they can learn from their own experience rather than mainly learning through other people's cases. Mm-hmm. So I design my courses where people work in small groups where they each consult to one another's cases each week. And then we analyze their cases in front of the large class. And uh, they write up analyses of their cases um, because leadership, as I've come to understand it, is a practice. It's not the same as having a position of authority. Right. So can you explain more about what you mean by practice? Because I think we all use that word differently. It's something one does. Okay. It's an activity. Mm -hmm. 
it's uh, it's like practicing medicine. It's a set mm-hmm. of things that you do to work a certain set of problems in the world. Yeah. In medicine, there are medical problems. In engineering, there are engineering problems. Mm-hmm. The field of leadership or the area of leadership has been confused mm-hmm. because it confuses leadership with authority. Yeah. And therefore, it confuses leadership with gaining a high position. We know intuitively that leadership is not the same as authority because we complain frequently about the lack of leadership that we get from people in authority. <laughs> we say the leaders aren't leading. Yeah. As a coach, I get comments like, help them be more leaderly. Right. And what people re- usually mean by that is help them be a little bit more comfortable in their authority. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to exercise or practice leadership. So much of my work has been organized around clarifying how we should define these terms and think about leadership as something you do rather than something that you are. A lot of people practice leadership just at moments in their life. They may be the person who raises the hard question in a meeting Mm -hmm. and keeps people from making a terrible mistake or points out a new creative opportunity. It may be that they don't do anything after that. So you're pointing really to this idea that I don't need to have an official title of leadership to extend the practice of leadership at any level within the organization. Right. And the idea is that anybody could practice leadership Mm -hmm. with or without authority. And when we begin to look around the world, we see lots of people practicing leadership without ever waiting to be called into play, without being elected or appointed Mm -hmm. or promoted. They practice leadership just because they see a problem in their midst. And they begin to organize people around them to work that problem. So activists. Exactly are a good example of people who lead without, often without much authority at all. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they'll build up an organization, but even then their target audience is generally not those inside the organization. Their target audience are people over whom they have no authority at all. You know, people who actually may not even like the point of view, mm-hmm. but where you're trying to engage them in rethinking some of their priorities. People in the United States, in any social movement, the civil rights movement is one very mm-hmm. good example of trying to mobilize people to rethink the contradiction in their own value set. And I wouldn't stop on the idea of the contradiction in your own value set. Can you say more about that? Because I think that's a powerful term and a powerful motivator for us to move forward. It is, uh, but it's hard for people to hold the contradiction in their own values. And -hmm. generally we rectify those contradictions by putting out of our sight the contradiction mm-hmm. itself. Nobody wants to be called a hypocrite and nobody wants to feel that they're not living up mm-hmm. to their values. So I would put that out of my sight by either removing myself from a situation or removing someone that that um, epitomizes my contradictions? Yes, and people who practice leadership get neutralized frequently. So one of the books I've written and courses that I teach is on uh, neutralization how people get brought down, how to stay alive in the practice of leadership Mm -hmm. when you're raising questions that are hard for people to wrestle with. If you say to people, as happened in the civil rights movement or is happening right now in the United States during this election season, I think what we've seen is that many people are trying to hold on to the values of a culture that has had enormous meaning and significance, a culture in which the roles in which men and women play fairly um, clear roles orients a household, and a culture where it's mainly, predominantly, one ethnicity, that Mm -hmm. is European descent. Mm -hmm. Uh, and mainly one religious persuasion. 
mm-hmm. uh, Christian of various denominations. And this is the U.S. specifically you're yes. talking about, okay? And in any in any community, you get a dominant mm-hmm. ethnicity and a dominant culture. And when that culture is challenged by immigrants of various kinds, there are real losses that the dominant culture then experience, and very difficult integrative work in adapting that culture so that it can now have successful and more harmonious relationships as a multicultural society. And that's a big challenge, not only in the United States, but in many places around Mm -hmm. the world. Mm -hmm. The leadership required then to say to people, you know, you say you stand for freedom and equality and respect for all you individuals. You say you even believe that we're all children of God. And yet. And yet. Look at the public policy that you're Mm -hmm. supporting. Look at the people you're voting for. You know, there's a contradiction here. How are we going to rectify that contradiction? Mm -hmm. And that question, you know, you say that you respect every individual, man or woman. Why doesn't a woman get to have the option, at least, that if she wants to work inside the home, that's great, and devote herself Mm -hmm. to uh, making a family? And if she wants to work outside the home, and run for office, go into combat, go into business, she also has that option. Why can't we make space for those freedoms? And yet the conversation, I, my dad's in the military, so we have this, and I'm a bit of a female activist, so we have this conversation at home fairly often. Yeah. What are the, what are the gives and gets? Because in, in either case, there's a give and a get. Right. And because the adjustments and the adaptations Mm -hmm. required of women are significant just as the adaptations and requirements of change are significant to men. And then Mm -hmm. there needs to be giving and getting in both domains, you know. Mm -hmm. And as we move into these transitions and evolve these cultures, we have to conserve and hold still, hold steady on the cultural DNA that's precious and essential and not throw out the baby with the bathwater. And yet... And yet, you can't hold on to all of it. Mm -hmm. You know, the reason why I I like so much this term adaptation is because in nature what happens when an organism achieves a successful adaptation in order to thrive in a changing environment, what happens is it develops new capacity. But it doesn't throw out all of its old capacity. Mm -hmm. Most of its new capacity builds from its old capacity. An organism can generate radically new functionality. Human beings can do amazing things compared to a chimpanzee. Mm -hmm. But 99% of our DNA is the same. God didn't do zero-based budgeting. (laughs) That's a great quote. We build from our culture. And we need to honor our culture and and then sift through what's precious and essential to conserve. Mm -hmm. What needs to be lost? And then Mm -hmm. what innovation will enable us to take the Mm -hmm. best of our history, values, virtues, you know, and traditions mm. into the future. And yet anything that gets removed, with it people become disenfranchised, some element of... Well, either some element or some habit, mm-hmm. or some power relationships might shift. There are the mm-hmm. losses, even if most of the culture remains intact, the losses are still really very significant. So if you're going to mobilize people to achieve an evolution in their culture, mm-hmm. where their culture has new capacity, to live up to those values, perhaps freedom of opportunity more Mm -hmm. fully, there are going to be losses on the way. And from a diagnostic point of view, the practice and the practice of leadership, you've got to be able to analyze and sense and identify what those losses are. So back to your medical practice of diagnosing, now applied to leadership. Exactly. And uh, 
the inclination, I think, of many people with great ideas and virtuous beliefs and cherished causes is they tend to discount and devalue the values and the virtues that are opposing them. They tend to two-dimensionalize them. Instead of moving towards their opposition and towards their enemy and trying to understand what's really at stake. Because the people who have the most to lose are the people who fight the hardest. The allies come cheap. Mm -hmm. Allies are easy because they basically are going to enjoy the benefits that you're promoting. Mm -hmm. But the people who have a lot to lose, they're going to fight. You know, a lot of people know the phrase, people resist change. But it's not really true. Nobody gives back a winning lottery ticket. People aren't really, people aren't stupid. <laughs> All right, so people I resist the stuff that doesn't favor me, and I exactly. embrace the stuff that... That does. People... People love change when they know it's a good thing. Mm -hmm. It's only the risk of loss or the mm -hmm. reality of a loss that people resist. And some changes involve a real loss, a and loss of power, of status, of importance. You, you change the, you stop gerrymandering the congressional districts in North Carolina and you're going to change the power dynamics. And that will generate real losses in how resources are allocated in our country. And to the factions that are involved, that's a, yeah, that's a real tangible exactly. experience loss. And I think one needs to be able to speak then in leadership with compassion mm -hmm. in naming the losses that you're asking people to sustain. If you're liberalizing an economy that's been controlled or you're educating girls who've never been educated in a, in a community, yeah. it's going to change the dynamics in that family that girl is going to start saying things to her father or her mother or her grandparents or her uncles that she hasn't said before. Those are significant challenges then. Mm -hmm. We may see it as pure benefit, mm -hmm. but to other people it's a disorientation mm -hmm. to their way of being, to their tradition. So on that note, let's take a break just momentarily and we'll come back with Ron Heifetz in just a second. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Metcalf & Associates is a management consulting and leadership development firm dedicated to helping leaders, their management teams, and their organizations implement innovative leadership and business practices to help create market differentiation necessary to thrive in this rapidly changing environment. As the author of eight award-winning leadership books, Maureen Metcalf and her associates are positioned to help you and your organization grow and thrive. Visit Metcalf-Associates.com. Maureen is ready to discuss your needs and tailor a solution to meet your needs through her expertise in keynote speaking, leadership coaching and training, transformational and organizational growth consulting. For your business, we can help with facilitated leadership retreats, organizational planning, culture alignment, individual and organizational assessments, online leadership development programs, and one-on-one -on -one or corporate-wide leadership development sessions. Move forward with Metcalf & Associates. Visit Metcalf-Associates.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. 
You are listening to Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. To reach Maureen Metcalf or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to info at metcalf-associates.com. Now, back to this week's program. Welcome back to Ron Heifetz and Maureen Metcalf at the International Leadership Association Conference. So you're talking about the gives and gets of change, and you were giving the example of educating young girls. Yes. The changes and the losses to both men and uneducated women when you start to educate a girl need to be understood and appreciated because we need to know how are you going to hold people through those changes so that they can see that you're not upending everything they believe in. You're going to honor and value a lot of their traditional culture. There's just some of it that's going to have to change. People are willing to suffer losses if they see the reason why. Okay, so if, if there's, again, if there's a win, if my daughter gets a better life than I had, yes, I'll, I'll endure a lot. Yes. You know, you grew up in the military, mm-hmm. uh, as did my wife, and people are willing to send their children off to war, yeah. but they have to see the reason why. Yeah, They freedom. have to see the meaning. Yeah. Right. All, a set of values that they ex- give their lives for. Exactly. So people can be mobilized to endure losses and to go through changes, Mm -hmm. but they need to see the reason why. Now, where do you find the reason why? The reason why is in their tradition, is in their culture, is in their cultural DNA that you're going to hold on to. That's what generates the reason why. So if you're some wonderfully creative, enthusiastic social change agent and you only talk about change, you're going to scare the hell out of people and you're not going to give people a reason to go through the change except those people who, who, for who whom it's a clear benefit. Yeah. But all those people who are going to have to endure the losses, you have to place the losses in the context of what you're going to conserve into the future and enable them to hold on to in a changing world in which they're going to need to change in order to hold on to what they love. So I'm going to say that back because it's really important. So as a leader, I need to help people see the win and what value they get by giving up something that they also hold precious. Yes. So it's the paradox of by by giving something up, my life gets better. Or yes, but it's not quite it's better. not quite as transactional though as okay. one might think. You know, in thinking of it in a sort of in a business context mm-hmm. or give and get sense in an economic mm-hmm. sense. It's that I continue to know who I am as a good father in this family, mm-hmm. with a daughter who's now got more education than I've got, mm-hmm. and. Actually, I have even I can even have more pride mm-hmm. as a father in this family that I permitted that to happen. Um, and here's how it's now consonant in my values, my tradition, even though it's a different tweak, a different interpretation mm-hmm. of how those values were given to me by my ancestors. Mm-hmm. I can understand how this is actually the best way for me to carry on the best of my tradition. And I, as you say that, I imagine while my dad wanted the absolute best for me, at some point 
just as I will with with others around me, it's hard to watch someone totally surpass me, and it's the proudest moment of my life. Exactly. At the same time. Exactly, and I think that's very natural and very normal, mm-hmm. you know. And and so you'd want the daughter, mm-hmm. if you were teaching her about mm-hmm. leadership, if she were the agent of leadership, you would want her to have compassion for her parents, and for her to know that you know they love it, but it's also tough, mm-hmm. and to be able to repair the sometimes what temporarily is a breach in that relationship mm-hmm. where there's strain mm-hmm. that that gets repaired over time if one maintains faith that over time those loyalties can be renegotiated and refashioned and renewed i like the idea of re- renegotiating because uh, yeah I, I i agree that the give and get is a very simplistic when it goes to the core of who I am and how I see the world, yes. and how I see, yeah, how I how I see myself yes. as a contributor to the world. Yes, because the sources of meaning that anchor mm-hmm. that that make it worth going through a, a period of cultural transition where the losses aren't even that clearly definable. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's not like the loss is five percent of my assets. Mm-hmm the sources of meaning are in values and and an identity yes and, who am and, i and identity anchored in relationships mm-hmm. that say i am of these people mm-hmm. i am of this ethnicity i am mm-hmm. of this culture's history i mm-hmm. am of this tradition and if you can honor a culture at the same time that you're challenging that culture and then come up with ways to innovate to allow that culture to change but still be itself. Again, I think that's a critical point, that making a change doesn't devalue everything that got us here. Right. So when we talk about participative leadership, it doesn't mean that command and control wasn't a major contributor to getting our country and most countries on the planet to their current state. Now we're talking about an adaptation, not not diminishing all of the people who got us here. Well, I, I think that's not only true, but I also think that authoritative command will continue to be useful because if the problem is primarily technical and known, mm-hmm. for which we've already developed the, the systems, mm-hmm. the organizational systems and cultural norms and processes, the schools to prepare people for that kind of authoritative mm-hmm. expertise, there will always be, it will always be more efficient to entrust mm-hmm. people with authority to run the show and to keep things moving mm-hmm. in a coordinated fashion. But as we experience in our changing world a changing ratio in which complex problems are partly technical mm-hmm. but also partly adaptive, where new capacity is required. So for then our listeners who don't know what adaptive is. Problems that require people to learn new ways. Mm-hmm. Build to new change capacity. themselves though, right? Well, there are frequently problems in which the people, the problem is embedded in people. Okay. Then you can't put people to sleep and fix their body. you got to get them to change their smoking or their eating. Mm-hmm. They have to achieve the solution because they mm-hmm. are the problem. And the reason I ask that is because this is some of your work that I think is so foundational to what we're doing with leaders is the idea that I can't fix something out there. I've actually got to change. The problem works me as much as I work the problem. Right, and I think that's a critically important mindset for the person practicing leadership. It's also very important to understand that that's what you're asking people to do. Mm -hmm. Uh, You're asking people to build new capacity. That 
if I'm a doctor, a, sur a cardiac surgeon, and I've sweated bullets all night long to mm -hmm. give this to redo the arteries to the heart, it's not enough after surgery to tell a person stop smoking, stop mm -hmm. drinking that mm -hmm. much, eat different foods, change your diet, and get exercise. Most people don't do it, yeah. even after almost dying of a heart disease. Um, it's harder to change the heart than it is just to fix it. Mm -hmm. And and we then have to understand what does it mean when you're asking people to change parts of their life. The learning required in having that person develop new capacity is adaptive work for them. It's it's analogous to an organism having to develop new capacity to thrive in a changing situation, a changing mm -hmm. environment. Mm -hmm. Well, that heart patient has to develop new capacity for that. The new capacity sounds straightforward, but it actually isn't because to change a diet means every time you feel a little lonely, every time you sort of feel a little stressed and you want some remembrance of what it was like when you'd go home and there was mm -hmm. mother and her cooking. Baskin Robbins ice cream. You can't go back to that. Yeah. So you have to come up with a new means of managing mm -hmm. those moments where you feel mm -hmm. stressed or lonely or want to go home but can't go home to that anymore. Yeah. You know, because it's going to kill you. Mm -hmm. So how do you do that? Well, you can't tell a person, just here's what you should do. They have to do it. They have to own the problem. Mm -hmm. They have to make the changes because the problem lies in their own heart and mind. So in adaptive problems, you're building the capacity of people to solve their problems. And that requires a more participative mode of operating than a more authoritative mode of operating because the people with the problem are the problem. So mm -hmm. they've, got to be, they've got to be mobilized and engaged in the problem solving. So how does that translate now to the bigger issues we face in our ecosystem? With the challenge of uh, climate change, there is no technical fix. It may be that we develop hydrogen fuel cells that in 20 or 30 years give us an endless supply of energy. Mm -hmm. And at that point, we'll, we will have solved a very big part of the climate change problem. Mm -hmm. But until then, the only way to really solve the climate change problem is for people to change what they do. Because the problem now is distributed amongst mm -hmm. masses of people. And no instrument from on high can just change it. Laws and public policy can help in pushing people to change their habits, making it easier to buy an electric car because you put... President Obama just announced they're going to put every 50 miles on certain highways all across the country a recharging station. Mm -hmm. So now you could take an electric car on a long distance drive. Okay. A very significant part of the climate change problem is that we eat meat. Industrial agriculture is a major source of climate change. Probably at least 20% of the problem of climate change is due to the amount of energy it takes to feed uh, animals and then mm -hmm. to eat the animals instead of the vegetables itself. It takes 2,000 gallons, more than 2,000 gallons of water to grow one pound of hamburger meat. 2,000 gallons of water. For one pound of hamburger meat. So that's all the watering of the fields mm -hmm. and the watering of the cows. And exactly. The... All the water that it takes to grow the plants, to feed the animals. Wow. So it takes an unbelievable amount of resources mm -hmm. that has a profound effect on climate change. How do you get people to change their diet, to stop eating meat or to eat less meat? Mm -hmm. 
you can't solve that problem just by instrumenting out high. You couldn't just pass a law mm. saying it's now illegal to eat meat. You'd get a revolution. Yeah. You'd get voted out of office. Mm -hmm. So we need leadership that will mobilize people to sustain the short-term pain of not being able to eat some of their favorite foods mm -hmm. that with which they identify home and family and, you know, comfort, comfort of all sorts of kinds and that just taste good <laughs> and to give that up and mm -hmm. develop new tastes or tastes for new things mm -hmm. um, that will help save our environment and keep many cities on coasts all around the world from Shanghai to Miami from going underwater. And yet for many people they would rather somebody else go underwater and not give up their hamburger. Yes. So we need to strengthen our sense of collective responsibility for these collective challenges. And there are things governments can do to help. They can mm -hmm. start uh, taxing carbon differently. Yeah. Yeah. They could tax meat differently instead mm -hmm. of subsidizing industrial meat production. Mm -hmm. uh, as we do in this country, mm -hmm. we subsidize the farmers that grow the corn that feed mm -hmm. the cattle. So the government could help mm -hmm. in, in generating more collective responsibility for our collective problems. But there are ways in which people could practice leadership in their families, in their schools, in their neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. You see, if, if leadership's not the same as authority, then it's something we're all called to do in all the various domains of challenges that we have within our reach. Mm -hmm. And uh, challenges like consuming less electricity or consuming less meat are within each mm -hmm. of our reach. And in that sense, mm -hmm. then the opportunity for leadership is available to all of us. And so one of the things I heard was the idea that I am I'm weighing more public good than I used to when I could just go grab a hamburger or jump in my big gas-guzzling sports car yes. and go drive fast because I felt good. Yes. And that's... That's a conversation that I think isn't happening enough yes. in our general population. Yes, I think that's right. And I think part of the problem is that we've confused citizenship with consumer being a consumer. Well, at some point there was an economic need to create jobs, so we create consumerism. And I'm yes. sure that's overly simplistic. But, no, but, but what I mean is that as a consumer, your job is to not buy the shoe that doesn't feel right mm. and to go to a different store. Because that's how the market works, you know. The market, businesses should cater mm -hmm. to your tastes and try to make a shoe that doesn't pinch. But in public life, mm -hmm. as a citizen, sometimes the shoe should pinch, you know. And looking for the candidate, the political mm -hmm. candidate, who will give you the most painless remedy. Uh, short term. Up, always short term. Becomes a real problem. Mm -hmm. Versus because a free trade. We, we begin shoe. to think that being a citizen is that we can behave just as the same way as you do when we're a customer. But That's actually, a nice distinction. A citizen yeah. has responsibilities to share what it means to be a citizen of a city, of a village, mm -hmm. of a state, mm -hmm. of a country, mm -hmm. um, is to own collective responsibility for it mm -hmm. and to feel that you have a role you know, in the lives of other people and an obligation to mm -hmm. them and they have mm -hmm. an obligation to you. And that's mm -hmm. what it means to have solidarity in community. And I think human beings do desperately want to have that. I think that's deep in the human nature and in human culture. 
Uh, uh, the, the, the joy that comes from belonging, from having your favorite football team or, mm -hmm. you know, or in America, basketball team or mm -hmm. baseball team win. And it's all in good sport with mm -hmm. your opposition. But mm -hmm. there's a sense of being part of a larger enterprise that mm -hmm. I think is deeply meaningful. I'm delighted. Thank you so much. Love. So a couple of the takeaways from this conversation for me are the idea that to, to address the challenges we're currently facing, certainly command and control is still in many ways the best solution to technical problems. But as we're facing adaptive problems, we as leaders need to build our own practice to look inside and identify what we need to personally change and where we need to help others around us make the personal change. The other thing that stood out for me is incredibly prominent is the idea that in, in our decision-making, we need to consider where we're taking the mind of the consumer, where I, I really am making decisions about what's best for me, and in other cases, where I take the mind of a civic leader or a community member or a leader and think about what is, what which of my actions do I put myself second and others the greater good of the whole first? And how do we do that as individuals and leaders? And some of us do it obviously much better than others so that we create an environment where more of our communities thrive. And this has been a theme across the ILA conference, I believe, different words from different presenters about how we are positioning ourselves as part of a greater whole and really making decisions that serve a bigger community, even though in some cases I will personally have to make changes that I'd really rather not, yet given the challenges we're facing, it is no longer an option for me as an individual to put myself above the greater whole if we want to solve some of these global problems that may not in fact make my life worse at this moment, but they will certainly make the lives of my family members worse if we don't collectively solve them in the relatively near future and change our trajectory because the decisions I make now are cumulative. So thank you so much, Ron, and I'm delighted that you were um, willing to invest an hour of your time with us today. Thank you. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Metcalf & Associates is a management consulting and leadership development firm dedicated to helping leaders, their management teams, and their organizations implement innovative leadership and business practices to help create market differentiation necessary to thrive in this rapidly changing environment. As the author of eight award-winning leadership books, Maureen Metcalf and her associates are positioned to help you and your organization grow and thrive. Visit Metcalf-Associates.com. Maureen is ready to discuss your needs and tailor a solution to meet your needs through her expertise in keynote speaking, leadership coaching and training, transformational and organizational growth consulting. 
For your business, we can help with facilitated leadership retreats, organizational planning, culture alignment, individual and organizational assessments, online leadership development programs, and one-on-one or corporate-wide leadership development sessions. Move forward with Metcalf and Associates. Visit Metcalf-Associates.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. To reach Maureen Metcalf or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to info at metcalf-associates.com. Now, back to this week's program. To end the interview with Ron Heifetz, I wanted to read the foreword from the book Leadership 2050, Critical Challenges, Key Contexts, and Emerging Trends. It was published in 2015 by Emerald Publishing, and Dr. Heifetz wrote the foreword. Mike Morrow-Fox, Susan Cannon, and myself also wrote a chapter within this book, and uh, the work of Dr. Heifetz was hugely impactful to us. This book helps us think at once about the demands our world is likely to face in the next 35 years and the leadership our communities will need to both survive these challenges and thrive. How will we grow the future out of the present? How will we prepare people for the practice of leadership our children and grandchildren will need? What is our work in our lifetimes to build the scaffold for the next generations? The authors in this volume have worked these questions with courageous imagination and insight. As they suggest, we live in an opportune time. Human beings can discover, as never before, our interdependence and commonality to bridge across national, religious, economic, and ethical identities. We can pool our talents, resources, and spirit locally and broadly to create the synergies and capitalize on our differences to evolve toward a sustainable, peaceful, and just world. The adaptive pressures challenge us. Severe inequity, disrespect, and violence toward women and disenfranchised people. Rapid climate change and devastation of our natural environment. An industrial numbing, brutality toward animal life. Population growth that exceeds the economic and political capacities of our cities, countries, and international relations. And the wars, chaos, and terroristic violence that follow when, as Yates wrote after World War II, the center cannot hold. Leadership is likely to matter. To introduce this volume, I suggest two key areas for our thinking and research as we look to the future, the dynamics of adaptive change and the practices of authority and leadership. I believe we need to comprehend much more fully than we currently do the dynamics of adaptive problem solving, not only generically, but also across the diverse contexts that require informed and skilled differences in leadership practice. To draw on the metaphor of evolutionary biology, adaptive processes involve three tasks, identifying the cultural DNA that should be conserved, 
identifying the cultural DNA that should be lost, and innovating the new capacity so people can bring the best of their culture's history into the future. In countless local and global ways, we will need to learn how to sift through what to conserve from the riches of our heritage, what to discard, and what innovations will enable us to move forward. Knowing how to move between local and global adaptive work will be crucial because different contexts require different local adaptations. As Tim Mack describes here, the practice of leadership in mobilizing adaptive changes requires being able to listen carefully and adjust accordingly to the subtle cues any particular environment provides. We need a great deal of research to capture lessons from past adaptive successes and failures, micro and macro, to identify the generic and contextual variables, and to suggest guidelines for leadership that can engage people in adaptive work across the great spectrum of families, organizations, and communities to evolve successful solutions. One such frontier is the need to understand how the practice of leadership can help people renegotiate and refashion historical loyalties and narratives to build on the essential wisdom of a familial or cultural narrative but depart to create sustainable modifications and innovations for the adaptive contexts in which we find ourselves. How can we refashion narratives both to give people the freedom to change and to provide anchoring orientation and guidance for the change process itself? For example, we see both historical and in our time that in response to the disorienting local and global challenges we face, too often we react by retreating to primary loyalties and narratives for security and identity and absolute thinking, but lose then the ability to engage in the complex tasks of sifting through our heritage to determine what to hold on to and what to change. We see this among some progressive and conservatives alike. The leadership of people, organizations, and institutions that will mobilize adaptive work within and across boundaries of our local frames of reference and draw upon the extraordinary human capacity will require, I believe, a deep understanding of the practice of adaptive change within and across contexts. Authority and leadership. The center cannot hold. The essay in this book suggests a second major opportunity on the frontier for practitioners, scholars, and teachers of leadership to more fully and clearly distinguish leadership from both formal authority and informal authority, meaning moral and charismatic authority. I see three sources of practical leverage derived from clarifying the conceptual relationships among leadership, formal authority, and informal authority. First, we need to deepen our understanding of the ways that authority relationships and authority structures can productively and trustworthily provide holding environments for families and communities that are stressed now and will be in the future so they can engage in a civilized form of collective problem solving. Holding environments are constructed not only of the horizontal bonds described as social capital, but also of the vertical bonds of authority relationships. Indeed, we might do well to expand our understanding of social capital to include both the horizontal and vertical bonds that hold communities together and create the matrix for collective problem definition and problem solving. As I've written elsewhere, authority can usefully be defined as a relationship in which one party entrusts power to another party in exchange for service. Power entrusted for service. Often these are the formalized roles, for example, in job descriptions or legal authorizations, and sometimes these roles are left informal. Example, the go-to person 
to whom people look to champion their perspective or inspire hope, but who may hold not high or even any position. Both formal and informal roles of authority are made up of authorizations, and both are crucial to the daily operations of family, organizations, and society. Neither, however, constitutes leadership in and of itself. One may lead from a formal authority position, but many do not. One may lead with abundant informal authority, trust, credibility, admiration, and respect, but many do not. Many squander both of these sources of a relational power and fail to lead. The first key reason to distinguish leadership from both formal and informal authority is to focus our attention on authority itself and the practices of renewing our human capacity to engage in healthy and respectful authority relationships, to renew our ability to trust, to strengthen the vertical bonds that hold us together. Distinguishing leadership from authority pushes us to investigate the virtues and values of authority structures in our lives and at the same time the ways authority becomes untrustworthy. My argument here is that trust is the basis for all authorizing relationships and therefore to raise the quotient of trust in our societies we need to train people who gain authority positions to be trustworthy. At the very same time we also need to renew the ability of people who have been scarred by violations of trust, either in their lifetime or in past generations that they carry, to discern trustworthy behavior and risk trusting again. In a world in which authorities are often have violated trust, for example through colonial oppression, sexual abuse, or police brutality toward minority citizens, distrust is often enculturated, preventing good citizens, governance, and healthy communal life. Renewing the trust of citizens towards authority requires, I believe, that we both prepare and train authorities to be trustworthy and at the same time address the fact that many of us have become distrusting toward authority in ways that are counterproductive. I believe we can do this. I've seen it happen in my 32-year leadership education in classrooms of 112 people, mostly at mid-career from 40 countries, many of whom represent traumatized histories and cultures of endemic distrust. People can be trained to notice from their past practices and to anticipate in their future for themselves the corrupting temptations of authority that will likely experience create anchors to maintain their own trustworthiness and develop the skill to repair the historic distrust of their people by learning, for example, how to acknowledge historic injustice and trauma and how to be on the receiving end of historic anger with grace. The second key source of leverage that comes from distinguishing leadership from authority is that it helps us build practical theory to guide the practice of leadership from authority positions. We need casework for teaching and research that explains the frequent failure of people in high positions of authority to exercise leadership. How is authority a constraint and not only a set of resources but the practice of leadership? We need research and theory that informs people in roles of authority about the constraints of authority for leadership and that provides practical theory to manage and transcend these constraints. For example, in my work advising George Papandreou, the former Prime Minister of Greece from 2009 to 2011, we faced a generic dilemma. How in a democracy do you disappoint the expectations of your own party's constituents 
and disperse widespread economic pain that may take years to resolve. And my current work with the Colombian President Jean Manuel Santos on the current peace negotiations with the FARC, we're analyzing the challenge, how do you prepare a traumatized people for peace when peace requires accepting significant psychological, economic, and political cost? The leadership of adaptive change from authority positions is something we need to understand much better than we currently do. The third key source of leverage that comes from distinguishing leadership for authority is the way it helps us prepare future generations for the practice of leadership from all walks of life. With and without authority, from wherever one sits, to fully democratize the availability of leadership as a practice that nearly anyone might do, we need to decouple it from positions of authority. Indeed, many of the authors of the volume provide illustrations of people who exercise leadership without office simply because they see a collective problem and then mobilize whoever is within reach to address it. They don't wait. They care and they act. Looking toward the future, our world will need more than ever leadership that comes simultaneously from many places to distribute the work of change to the local level. For many of our future challenges, our problems will lie within the hearts, minds, and behaviors of people, and so the solutions will lie there as well. When the people are the problem, the people are the solution. Therefore, we need a theory and practice of leadership available to citizens from all walks of life. We need to educate children and adults to see that leadership as a practice is available to them simply because they care and engage, regardless of their social dominance or authority. This book points ahead to the work to be done in every realm of our lives throughout the globalizing world. Families work to survive and thrive in challenging conditions, businesses in complex environments, tackling tough trade-offs, squaring values of profitability, long-term sustainability, and social justice, and public organizations, nonprofits, and social entrepreneurs working to build collaborative capacity across boundaries to transcend culture of dependency into communities of engaged citizens and distributed leadership. So again, thank you to Ron Heifetz for being our guest and for the wisdom he shared in the ILA book, Leadership 2050. Thank you again for joining us this week. Please tune in for another edition of Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations with Maureen Metcalf next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We hope to see you here next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.